Welcome to Mosaic Podcasts. We hope you enjoy the following recording from Mosaic Church Lease based in the United Kingdom. For more podcasts and information on Mosaic Church, please visit mosaic-church.org.uk. Thank you for listening. Uh, so it's, it's interesting to think about stories and films. Stories and films, often stories that are made into films that last for decades, generations, maybe even centuries. Stories that capture our hearts. They inspire us. We love to retell them. We often even sing songs about them. Great stories like Robin Hood or Lord of the Rings or Forrest Gump or Shawshank Redemption. Stories that are made into films and endure the test of time. They capture our hearts and we'll watch them again and again, year after year. Just the other week I watched Die Hard 1 which is such a story, in my opinion. It was, uh, written, it, was, it was sort of cast in the 80s, so the graphics are horrendous, but it has an enduring storyline uh, because it tells this story of a, of a guy called uh, John McClane, played by Bruce Willis, who gives a stellar performance. And his life is spinning out of control. His marriage is falling apart, and he rarely sees his children. But he goes to his wife's uh, work Christmas party in the hope that he can patch things up and, and, and the building and this multi, multi-million pound uh, sort of corporation is taken hostage, is seized by 12 terrorists led by Mr. Evil himself, Alan Rickman, who plays another stellar performance. And uh, here's the slogan, 12 terrorists, one cop, the odds are against John McClane, but that's just the way he likes it. <laughs> So against all the odds, this lonely cop in bare feet and his feet get sort of lacerated with glass as the film goes through and he has a single handgun but he ends up defeating all the terrorists. He saves dozens of people, he saves millions of pounds and most importantly he wins back the love and affection of his wife although he's divorced by number two which is a shame for the sort of bigger story that it fits into. But it was good for that story that he wins her back But like many great films, it captures our hearts. Why? Why did it capture my heart? We we have a film club here at Mosaic, and in our film club, we always rate the films out of five. Most of the guys gave the film four out of of five, five out of five. I gave it 5.5 out of five. And uh, all the girls gave it two or three, which just confirmed what we all know. Girls have a terrible taste in films. So, um, but why does it capture our hearts? It's a story of good triumphing over evil, Suffering ending in glory, pain ending in victory, endurance ending in a great reward, what seemed like inevitable death ending in glorious and brilliant life, a hope and a future. It's often stories like these with a great reversal and an unexpected hero that capture our hearts and inspire us. Where something is dramatically, a situation is dramatically changed, and the down and outs end up being the heroes. So hobbits save Middle Earth from the evil reign of Sauron. Robin Hood and his merry men, this small minority of outcasts, defeat the unjust tyrant, again played by Rickman. This awkward, slightly backward character, Forrest Gump, who the world has written off, becomes an Olympic table tennis champion, a millionaire of a shrimp business, a war hero who meets the president and receives the greatest military accolade, and underneath it all, we admire him for his courage and faithfulness in his relationships to his mum and his childhood sweetheart, Jenny. See, we love a story where there's a dramatic reversal and an unexpected hero, there's new life, there's a new start, there's resurrection. And one of the reasons why going to the cinema 
and watching a film is so enjoyable is that for two hours, Hollywood creates a world that we get to enter where the good guys win and the bad guys lose. For two hours, we live in a world where the story ends as we want it to end, as our hearts desire every story would end. For two hours, the world we wish was true is true. And we wish it were true, because if it was true in reality, wow, that would make such a difference to every trial and suffering and adversity we face. You see, our hearts yearn that such a world is true. We're desperate that in the end, good will triumph over evil. And so when we find out that this film, and at the end the trailers come on, and then it says, based on a true story, ah, our hearts are even gladder. Because this wasn't make-believe. This was something that was true, and if it was true then, maybe it could also be true in our experience. Well, Hannah's song and Jesus' resurrection tell us that our heart's desires can become true. This isn't the make-believe world of Hollywood. This isn't wishful thinking. This is absolute dynamite. This is true. This is reality. This is history. And if we get hold of it, it will give us a strength, a courage, a confidence like nothing else. Because of Easter Day 2,000 years ago, when Jesus rose from the dead, Hannah's experience can become our experience. Hannah's story can become your story, a story you can end up singing and celebrating about. This is how she summarizes her story in verse 8. It's about a great reversal and an unexpected hero. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. See, Hannah celebrates how God has got hold of her life and has radically changed her life upside down and inside out. She's just totally transformed her. And she was in the dust, in the ash heap. And now she's got a place of honor and authority and power and status with kings and queens. She was a down and out, but has become an unexpected hero in a great reversal. So Hannah's song is a great song for us to think about on Easter Day, because it's basically a song about resurrection life. And it's a great song for us to celebrate and think on and ponder on on a baptism service, because in baptism, what Ewan has just said is, God got hold of my life, and he brought a radical reversal inside. It's so radical, the best way to describe it is that I died and was born again of the Spirit. It was that radical, and now I'm living for him. So how has Hannah's life been completely turned upside down? Well, the story goes like this, if you don't know it. Hannah was married to a man called Elkanah, but she was barren. She was unable to have children. Even today, for women to be barren is a very hard thing, causing great anguish and pain of one's soul. But to be barren in those days, in that ancient Middle Eastern culture, was far more devastating. To be barren meant you had no worth, because your worth was bound up in your family and your offspring and your inheritance. And if you had none then you had no worth. To be barren meant you had no security because who cared for you in that culture? Who cares for you even today in this culture? As you get old, it's your children. They protect you. They care for you. And if you had no children, then not only did you have no worth, you had no security. And to be barren meant you had no wealth because how would you generate wealth in that culture? Well, the children would go out to work on the land and bring back wealth and food 
for you. And if you had no children, you had no wealth. So to be barren, to be Hannah, is to know shame, disgrace, and humiliation. You were the poorest of the poor. And to make matters worse for Hannah, her husband Elkanah, because he loves Hannah, he does, but he sees that she's not bearing children. And he knows the importance of children. That's how you get value, worth, and security, and wealth. And so he marries another woman called Penina. And guess what? Penina has no trouble having children. She has lots of children. And so she becomes Hannah's great rival, provoking her in order to irritate her until Hannah wept and would not eat. And in the bitterness of her soul, Hannah wept so much before the Lord and she poured her soul out to the Lord. Hannah didn't give up. She persisted in prayer. She kept coming before God and she said to the Almighty God, if you will remember me, God, if you will look upon my misery, if you will give me a son, I will dedicate him back to you. He won't be raised in my home. He'll be raised in the presence of God and serve God all the days of his life. And God heard, the creator of the heaven, heavens and the earth heard this barren woman's cry. What a thought. Have you ever cried out to God in desperation? And he hears her prayer and he answers her prayer and he opens her womb and he gives her a boy named Samuel. Samuel means heard of God because Hannah realized that the Almighty God had heard her prayer and given her a child. And so after weaning this boy for three, two, three years, she gives him back to God. She dedicates him to God and he grows up in a place called Shiloh in the presence of God. Imagine it, that moment. Hannah, all her life, had been desperate for a child. She'd longed for a child. God had given her a child. And imagine it. She weans the child for two or three years and then says, now I give him back to you. So what was her response to God's saving work in her life? What was, God, what was her response to God hearing her prayer? Well, she fulfills her vow. She does dedicate Samuel. You know, she's a woman of strength, of integrity, Her yes is yes and her no is no. But what does she do after that? What should you do when God rescues you, when God dramatically does something in your life? Fulfill your vow to him. But second of all, burst into songs of praise. That's what Hannah does. Hannah sings about the greatness and the power of her God who can reverse human fortunes by his mighty power. And if you know the Bible story, you'll know it's not unusual for women to bring theological reflection in song. Miriam and Deborah are others who would do the same. And later, Mary, the mother of Jesus, basing her song on Hannah's song, would write the Magnificant, which is probably the greatest song in the New Testament. And it's a song that would inspire the pop band U2 today to write a song. And Hannah's song becomes a national anthem for the people of God. It is quoted word for word in Psalm 113. You see, God loves to use women to help us understand and celebrate in song the most profound theological truths. It's not inappropriate for us to be looking at a woman today because who was the first witness, the first preacher of the resurrection? Her name was Mary Magdalene 
Her life had been spiraling out of control. She'd been a complete mess, but she'd met Jesus. Jesus has brought a radical transformation in her life. She'd followed Jesus all the rest of her days, but then Jesus had been slung up on a cross, and she thought all hope was gone, but then she goes to the tomb, and Jesus says, Mary, and hope was restored. And she becomes the first apostle sent one to tell people of the resurrection in the, new, in the world. We are sat here today celebrating the resurrection because she went and told people. God loves to use women to help us understand God's power and his resurrection power. So let's look at her song, shall we? Verse one says this, Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. And notice the phrase Hannah uses. Hannah says, in the Lord my horn is lifted high. What does that mean? If you read your Bible, you'll see it again and again, particularly in the Old Testament. And it will say in the footnotes, horn symbolizes strength. What does it mean to say in the Lord my horn is lifted high? Well, the phrase probably comes from the animal world and from deer. And the deers in mortal and physical combat would lock in to each other with their horns. They'd raise their horns towards one another. And one of them would win. Their horn would be lifted high. And it meant they had status and strength. And in the birth of her son, Hannah says God has given her status and strength, a confidence, a dignity, and an assurance. But this is the crucial thing. She says, in the Lord... My horn is lifted high, not in her son. Look at verse 2. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one beside you. You, There is no rock like our God. Hannah says, "The, the rock of my life, the one that gives me stability, security, confidence, and strength is the Lord. There's no one like him. If you've never met Jesus, there's no one like him. The word holy means he's separate, he's perfect, he's pure, but it, all means, it also means he's different. There's just nothing like him. And Hannah says, I found a rock on which I can build my life, which is more secure than anything else in this whole world. There's no one like him you can build your life on. He's totally different. Hannah has found something solid. It's not the fact that she has a son. It's the fact that she knows the Lord. And in light of this, and in light of who God is, she warns those She warns those who live independently of him and build their lives on other rocks. Look at verse 3. Beware you proud. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance for the Lord is a God who knows and by him deeds are weighed. Who is she talking about? Well, she's probably most likely talking about Peninnah. But she's talking, I think, about anyone who's arrogant and proud, who's a self-sufficient boaster like Penina, who gets gifts from God. Penina had so many children, but she uses the gifts God give, gives her to boast and be proud. She builds her identity on the gifts God gives her. And you know, that is the essence of sin. What is sin in biblical terms? The essence of sin is receiving a wonderful gift like a child from God and then putting all your hopes and all your dreams and building your whole life on this gift to such an extent that you'll feel proud and arrogant about those that don't have the gift and you'll feel threatened and inferior to those that have a greater gift because your whole identity is built on a gift God gave you 
That's what Peninnah had done. She elevated herself above Hannah. She was boastful and put Hannah down because of her lack. She turned God's gift into her identity and security. And what had Hannah done? In stark contrast, she cried out to God, if only you'd give me a son. If only you'd give me what my heart desires, a gift. And she receives the gift, but she doesn't build her identity on it. She doesn't even hold on to it. She gives it back to God. What she says is the Lord is my rock. The giver is my rock, not the gift. And the essence of sin is we forget the giver and we build our identity on his, the gifts he's given us. And what a lesson for all of us who are parents or most of us will become parents and particularly for mothers not to build your life on your children Not to build your identity on your children, but on the Lord. Not to have all your hopes and dreams and joys found in your children, but in the Lord. We must give thanks for our kids. I have two kids. I enjoy them a lot. I serve them. I cherish them. In many practical ways, my life revolves around them. But ultimately, I have to say daily, Lord, ultimately my life doesn't revolve around my kids. I'm building my life on you. Not... Not even our kids compared to knowing Jesus. That's what it is to say the Lord is my rock. I love my kids so much, but I need to be able to say, compared to knowing Jesus, not even my kids are of value compared to that. It's not because I don't love them. I love them dearly, but he's the giver of all good gifts. You see, my children may let me down or be taken from me, but the Lord will never let me down. And he'll never leave nor forsake me. And if you can say that as a parent, and maybe your thing isn't children. Maybe your thing's a talent you've got, a relationship you've got, status, money, success, sport, music, whatever your thing is that you think is a gift from God and you enjoy it, yes, but then you make it everything. You build your life on it, your whole identity. You see, if you can't say that about what your thing is, and if you can't say it about your children, you'll you'll love your children, but you'll smother them. You'll try to protect your children, but actually you'll create an unhealthy dependence which neither of you can separate from, and your children will grow up immature. And you'll pour your whole life into your children, but you'll also pin all your hopes on your children. So when they fail, or you fail, you're devastated because you had all your hopes there. If you don't love God before your children, your children will enslave you, or you will enslave your children. If you make your children your rock, you're giving them a role they cannot fulfill and you will crush them or they will crush you or whatever your thing is, whatever you end up building your life on will become your master and it will enslave you. Except if you build your life on the Lord who is a master who frees you. You know, to love your children to the greatest, deepest, most sacrificial deaths, to enable them to become all they can be, you need to say, the Lord is my rock and my heart rejoices in him. Do you see how profound Hannah's words are? Here was a woman who has found freedom in the Lord. She's not controlled by her children. And you know what? If you're thinking, Steve, how can you say that? It's because you don't know how good your father in heaven is and that he loves your children more than you do. And the moment you say, God, I love them, I want to have be responsible for them, I want to do what I can, but ultimately I give them back to you, is because you know he's a heavenly father who has a far greater love and care and a power to care for them than you do.
so our hearts can rest and not be anxious because we're giving our kids back to the giver. So look, Hannah warns those who build their lives on other things, including family, and as a result become proud and arrogant. And she says, look, the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. You see, God is a God who knows our hearts. Even now as I'm speaking to you, God knows your heart. He knows your hopes and your dreams. He knows what you're building your life on. And one day, every deed will be weighed. There will be accountability and judgment. Did we build our lives on God or on other things? And the idea of God bringing a balance to life is this idea that in the end, everything will be equaled out in some way. That those who had nothing in in this life and were down and out and were cast off by faith, they can become those that eat, that celebrate, that drink wine, that dance with kings and queens in the kingdom of God. And those who thought they were so big and strong and perfect in this life, and knew their heart was proud and arrogant, will be humbled in the next. They tried to save their life, and they lost their soul. So Hannah says that's what the Lord is going to do, and she gives seven different situations where God reverses. He reverses situations and brings a balance in seven couplets, and there's seven great reversals and seven unexpected heroes. This is what he said, the bows of the warrior are broken, And those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for food, but those who are hungry hunger no more. She who is barren has borne seven children, but she who has many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. And I want to ponder a moment on this last one, this final reversal, this final couplet that Hannah talks about. You see, the rubbish heap was outside the city of Jerusalem and it was the resort of those who were in trouble. And the people on the outside of the city living on the rubbish dump end up eating with royalty. I remember when I was 18 years old, I had a year out in Ecuador, in South America, and there was a moment that profoundly God did something deep in my soul. I went to the outside of this place called Santo Domingo de los Corralados. There we go, you didn't know I could do that. And I went to the outside of this village, of this town, and outside the town was a rubbish dump. And it was flies and disease and birds spiraling. And in the middle of the rubbish dump, there were families and there were children with rotting teeth and matted hair. And Hannah says... By faith, people like that end up being the heroes. Where injustice in this life seems to dominate, Hannah says, in the end, God is going to right every wrong. Good will triumph over evil. Those children, by faith, can end up inheriting the kingdom of God. The Lord has the power to reverse every situation and bring a balance so that what seems so unfair and this so unordered world where the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper in the end will be balanced out. Hannah says if it doesn't happen in this life, it will happen in the next. You see, that is Hannah's personal experience. She'd been an equivalent of on the rubbish dump. But it had become her story and her salvation and her song that God had delivered her 
It became her song about what God had done. And so Hannah goes from saying, this is my story. This is my salvation. This is my song. And she says, this can be the story and the song of everyone who would trust in Jesus. She goes from the micro-level salvation, one person, to the macro-level salvation, all God's people. Look what she says. She says there's two ways to live. Verse 8, for the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. Upon him he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked will be silenced in darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder against them from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Hannah says, look, God laid the foundations of the earth. That means God set a social and moral order to this world and will one day hold the world to account and bring judgment on every single thought, word, and deed. And two types of people are contrasted. She says, he will guard the feet of his saints. He will protect, God will guard people like Hannah. He will protect them. Those who through the tragedies of life persevere in prayer, keep trusting him, keep building their lives on him, keep putting him first. He will preserve them. He will guard their feet. They will end up as his saints in the kingdom of God. But the wicked will be silenced in darkness. He will thunder from heaven and shatter all who are proud. Those like Penina, who are self-sufficient and live independently of God, who build their identity on his gifts and become arrogant. You see, Hannah is talking about judgment after death. She may be the most humble and godly woman you've ever met, but she's not afraid to speak the truth. She's a woman of great strength and conviction. And Hannah says, look, there are two ways to live in this life, two places you can put your trust, in God, in Jesus, or in the gifts. You can be humble as you recognize you do nothing, and he rescues you, and he does it all, and he transforms your life, and you have to accept you're spiritually bankrupt. You have to humble yourself to be a Christian. Or you can say, no, I don't need God. I'll do it on my own. And Hannah says, there's two ways to live now that will result in two eternities. And the wicked will be silenced in darkness. And this idea of darkness and death has been picked up earlier in the most staggering of the reversals she talked about in verse 6. It says, the Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. You see, this is the most staggering of couplets because it envisages the Lord bringing people back from the realm of the dead. You see, the word grave is the Hebrew word sheol, which means abode of the dead. And it's depicted as this huge underground cave where judgment takes place. And here in verse 9, we learn that God can deliver from sheol, the grave. God can bring people up from the abode of the dead. But he says the final destiny of the wicked is this nether world where all is darkness and all is silence forever. And the question is, how does Hannah know? How can Hannah be so certain that her Lord has the power to bring people out of the abode of the dead, the place of judgment? Well, look how the song finishes, verse 10. 
the anointed king. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. See, Hannah talks about a day when a king would come. And a king in the Old Testament was anointed with oil there. And it was the, what marked them out and commissioned them for their task. They were to rule over God's people. And a few chapters later, we hear about Saul becoming king. And then, most famously, King David. And he rules over God's people. And he's a magnificent king but he doesn't have the strength and the power to defeat the grave. And he's not going to be the ultimate judge of this world. But Hannah knew that another anointed one, another king would come. And you know the word anointed one, translated in the Old Testament is Messiah, in the New Testament is Christ. And that's what Easter is all about. All of Hannah's hopes and prayers were realized 2,000 years ago when for the first time in history someone from the line of David walked out of the grave. Someone defeated the silence and darkness of death. Someone reversed the course of human history and destiny forever. He became the greatest hero and the greatest example of good triumphing over evil. His name was Jesus. Do you remember the story? He had done no wrong There was no deceit in his mouth and no malice in his heart. It was said of him that a bruised reed he would not break and a smoldering wick he would not snuff out. He was humble and gentle, yet he was hated. He was treated as an outsider. He was rejected by all and despised. He was a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Even though his whole life spoke of beauty and love, he was hated by the powerful elite of the day and they beat him to a pulp And where did they crucify him? Outside the city. Rejected as an outcast. Smothered in blood and tears and sweat. He would cry out to God for help, but God would not listen as he'd listened to Hannah's prayer because God had abandoned him. Why? And then he was laid to rot in the grave. Why was he abandoned? Why was he left to rot in the grave? Because every time you and I are proud, every time you and I build our lives on the gifts, not the giver, every time we say to God, I don't want you in my life, everything we do absolutely wrong and that stinks, Jesus took into himself. He faced the full judgment. He took it all on his shoulders. The reversal that every single one of us should experience as we're bankrupt before God and we should be pounded to the ground and left forever in Sheol, Jesus took that reversal for us. He died in our place. He died for you on the cross. But he wasn't left there. The psalmist put it so well in Psalm 16 when he says, Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave nor will you let your Holy One see decay. God raised Jesus from the dead. He defeated death. Sin had been paid for. You see, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. Jesus died to pay for our sin. So we could know a reversal and we could be exalted to the heavens in the kingdom of God. And you know what the song we get to sing is? It's not Hannah's song. It's a song of victory that resounds throughout the whole New Testament. Paul puts it like this in 1 Corinthians. 
Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? Thanks be to God. He gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus' resurrection guarantees a better future that one day Hannah's story can become every single story of anyone who puts their trust in Jesus where good will triumph over evil. He is the anointed king. He is the rock on which you can build your life. He can become your strength, your salvation, and your song. And that is what I want to offer you all today, whether you call yourself a Christian or not, that you would find yourself in this great story of salvation and that Jesus would become your song. You see, we've looked at Hannah's story and the song that she sings in response, God lifting her out of the ash heap. We've looked at the greater story to which Hannah's story was just a shadow, that Jesus' death and resurrection was the way that he would triumph over evil and suffering and death. And as we sing, think about that, that's why, we sing and that's why we sing and we put our hands in the air today because we're saying this is the greatest news in history. And our question I want to ask you as we end is, how is your story going and what is your song? How is your story going and what is your song? You see, we all need a story to fit our lives into that gives us meaning, hope, hope purpose and courage. We all need a story that we know is not make-believe, it's true, it's historically, it happened, and because it happened, the story's going to end out okay. And we all want a story where all the things in our life where we feel we've been unjustly done, God can somehow miraculously turn around. And in Jesus, his resurrection, that story is true. And here's the thing, we know how the story ends, There's a banquet, there's a feast, there's a new creation. There's no more tears and suffering. He triumphs, he comes back. Everyone says he's Lord. Everyone bows the knee, whether you like it or not, you confess him as Lord. But he's looking for actors to play their part in the story. He's looking for people to enter the story and become unlikely heroes to bring about that great end. How do you enter the story. He becomes your song. How did Hannah enter the story? How did Ewan enter the story? Ewan said today, what changes have happened in your life? Suddenly I was always worried about my identity, but suddenly he became everything to me. Suddenly Jesus becomes everything. He becomes your song. He becomes the one you cherish and admire and love and devote yourself to. He becomes the one that gets you up in the morning. He becomes the one that excites you. Instead of saying, God, would you fit into my story? God, would you fit into my plans? You say, God, I have the privilege of fitting into your story. I have the privilege of fitting into your plans. Ah, let me fit into your story. Would you be my song? The one that I sing about. The one my heart rejoices in. And if you say that, whether you fail or succeed, whether you win or lose, whether people like you or not, whether it's a good day or a bad day, whether there's sickness or health, whether there's poverty or riches, whether there's suffering or prosperity, whether there's life, whether there's death, whether the greatest gift in this life, even your children, are taken from you, you'll find you have a song. Because Jesus is your song. And he never left you. He never forsook you. He was with you. He was a comfort and a strength and a rock. He's enough for you. There's no one like him. He's the Lord of history. He's the Lord of eternity. He's the Lord who smashed the grave. He says, I'm the Lord of your life tonight.
Are you the one, am I the one you're building your life on? That's what baptism is all about. It's saying, I discovered I could be part of God's story. He came looking for me and brought me in. And he's become my song. It's what I want to sing about. I want to tell people about him. He's magnificent. And the question is, do you want to be in his story or are you forever going to dictate to him that he comes into yours? And will you sing to him? If you don't know him and you want to commit to him, maybe you've grown up hearing this story time and time again, but today the Lord has just brought a bit of revelation to you and you've suddenly gone, I'd never seen it like that. Then today you can commit your life to him. I'm going to give her a chance to respond in a minute. It's going to be so simple. All I'm going to do, we're going to have a moment of silence now when I finish. I'll invite the band up. We're just going to ask, I'm going to ask every one of you to think about where you stand before God. I'm then going to ask if you want to raise your hand and commit to him. Everyone's eyes will be closed. I'll be the only one that sees. And then during our song, I'll come and talk to you about if you want to get baptized. If you don't, don't worry. We'll just pray and we'll work out the next steps. So how's it going? How's your story going? What's your song? Jesus says, fit into my story and let me become your song. Can I invite you to stand? Can I invite the band back? Why don't we just close our eyes as we respond? If you're not a Christian or if this is one of your first times in church, we just have moments where the Spirit of God just likes to impress things upon our hearts and it's often helpful just to take a moment to look in, to look at the last week, to look at the last year and to say, what have I been building my life on? Does it set me free or does it enslave me? What's the song that I've been singing? What's been my most, what's the thing that I'm most passionate about? And does it enslave me and crush me? Or does it set me free? And today, the Holy Spirit, I think, wants to set you free. You might have grown up a Christian but never really committed, never done what Ewan's done. And the Spirit of God is saying, come on, come to Jesus, surrender, give him your all. Maybe in this last year, this last six months, this last month, you've drifted from him. Something else has become your song. Something else has become your rock. Just as we got our eyes closed, why don't you just think about whether you're willing to give that up. That's repentance. Giving up those things in life that stop us coming to God. Are you willing to give that thing up and put Jesus first? And maybe you're here and you've never ever heard this before or never heard it like this. You've never seen a young guy share his testimony like you and did. You've never seen people sing songs in such passion like we have done. And you know God is saying, enter the story, start singing the song. Or you could give your life to him tonight. Let me pray for us and then I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. Father, I pray now your Holy Spirit would come upon any that need to give themselves to you, whether afresh or for the first time. Lord, together we say you're our rock. Just in your own heart, just say that to him. You're my rock. Lord, if anything was taken away from me, the thing that's most precious, I've still got you. 